0: Great job. So, um, I guess just before we kick into the message, uh, for, for new and old, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the background. One of the things I'm trying to learn as a pastor is how do you share with the congregation the stuff that you don't really know how it's going to land uh, so I'm trying to get better at sharing stuff as it's going, but there's, there's some things going on in the background, there's going to be some classes and conferences and retreats coming up, we're looking at some justice initiatives to get out there in the community, we're talking about mission trips, there's a bunch of conversations starting to happen, um, and so you're going to get that information soon, so just to prepare you, there is stuff coming, um, and so if you're one of those people going, there's this thing about church that I love and we don't have it right now, just hold on, things are coming. So, um, yeah. When I, uh, when I took this job, I mean, we're talking about 17 months ago, uh, I, I had been in a season where I was looking for something different. I was looking for a new challenge. I'd done the church planting thing. I'd done the big church thing. And, and through a, a good long season of discernment, asking a lot of people in my life to be praying and helping us make decisions, uh, God kept pointing us back to this little church in Hillsborough, that was looking for someone that might be crazy enough to come and help uh, drive things forward. Um, and through that process, like as, the, as you are interviewing Monica and I, uh, we're interviewing you, right? And, and part of that process as we would meet in calls and as we would come and be here in person, uh, I may have said this before, we had one question the whole way through that we kept asking. Uh, And whenever we got off the call, Mon and I would look at each other, and when I'm talking to pastor friends and talking with my spiritual director and mentors, the, the one question that I would always come up with is, okay, on paper, these guys seem to know what they're looking for and are hungering for something different. Do they understand the cost required to bring about change? And that was the question we got off the call. Those people were awesome. They said all the right things, but did they really understand the cost that's going to be asked to bring about change? And uh, as I've talked about the last couple of weeks in in the sermon series, at the end of the day, we're seeing change, right? We're seeing growth. We're seeing fruit. Uh, We took the job because when we wrestled with that question, the answer we came up with was yes. It seems like people are really ready to pay a cost, and and many of you had already paid a significant cost uh, two years prior in the transition that happened through Vital Church and what they'd done. You'd been willing to pay a cost. Um, And so as we asked those questions and we saw that, we were like, yes, these people have paid cost and will continue to pay the cost that Jesus requires. Now, when you step into a role like this, and I step into this role, the danger is we go, Scotty is going to change our church. Scotty is going to drive things forward. All these people are coming because of Scotty. The danger is we sit back and we go, he's got degrees, so he's going to be able to teach us all the stuff that we know to be able to drive the church forward. He's young, he's going to connect with young people, and it's going to drive the church forward. Uh, He has some crazy ideas in his mind that if he puts in place, are going to drive the way forward, and we know that's not how it works, right? Doesn't matter what degrees I have. Doesn't matter what church experience and ministry experience I have. It really doesn't matter a whole whack what this person is standing up here, other than my heart is for Jesus and my heart is for you to know him more. And so we know for this church to drive forward, the only thing that's going to change this church and make it what it needs to be is him. I'm just along for the ride. Uh, but there's a cost that we pay. There's a cost that we pay as we try and be the person that God has called us to be. Um, I want to share one more thing before I, uh, before I jump in. I was talking with someone this week, and they asked the question, Okay, why the heck? They didn't say heck. <laughs> Are you preaching Zechariah? And I was like, Well, here's my reasons." She goes, You've got to tell people. It's like I think it did tell people you might not have been there that week, but it's a good reminder that I need to I need to come back and revisit. Like, why are we here? If you're reading this at home, if you're getting done after the service and you're looking, you're going, "Why the heck is this where we are?" So I, I wrote down a few reasons here uh, why we're in this series. So first of all, if if you remember, I've said this before, this church has spent a lot of time in the New Testament. And so that means there's a dearth of of time in the Old Testament. And what is back there is so important for understanding the gospel and driving things forward. Um, In any church that visits the Old Testament, the minor prophets are usually the last place that we go. So even if you've spent time in the Old Testament, we usually don't know the, the, the minor prophets very well. And in a church like this, where you've got a lot of people going, I know the word really well, do you know what that means? That means I know really well the parts of the Bible that I like and understand. And it means I gloss over. There's other parts of the Bible that I kind of gloss over, and I don't really know them, but I know the Bible really well, and I'm guilty of saying that too. Um, So this was a great opportunity to jump in somewhere that I knew we've probably not spent a lot of time. You have probably personally not spent a lot of time in Zechariah, and so let's go there. Um, In this book... Uh, there is a parallel between what the people of Israel are experiencing and where we're at in the life of the church. So it's not just, let's just give them some Old Testament and freak them out with the minor prophets. But this is, the, the content of this book is really relevant to where God has us on this journey. And so it's important that we dig in and see what it is that he has for us. Um, and then here's the last thing that she you said, you've got to tell them this. If you're reading this book and thinking this is weird and intimidating and I don't understand, me too. She's like, you're preaching this book because you've studied it a lot, right? I'm like, no, I'm studying this book to preach it to you because I don't know it well enough either. And it's terrifying. And for weeks and weeks, for months on the lead up to this, I was like, I would tell my friends, I'm going to preach Zechariah. And I'm like, I'm probably going to change my mind before I get there because it's so intimidating. This is intimidating. This is hard stuff. And so if you're looking at it going, ah, where are we going? Yes, let's do this together because it's a whole lot of fun. So, So that's why we're in it. Uh, We're trying to fill out what's lacking. We're trying to push into areas that we don't know. Uh, We're looking at the parallels of where we're at, and we're on this crazy journey of what the heck is going on. Let's do it together. So that's why we're in the book of Zechariah right now. Uh, And if you remember, so far in the journey, uh, we're looking at a series of visions that Zechariah has on one night in February 19, 519 BC. Uh, And so vision number one, there's, there's this kind of process Happening in the book. So, right at the beginning of chapter one, the call to repentance. Turn to me and I'll return to you. But then there's this process happens through these visions, and the best way to think about it is like a camera or or a, a film on the TV zooming in. So if you remember, vision one was these four horsemen that are patrolling the entire earth and coming together and having a conversation. So the whole earth is in view. Then when you come into the vision we looked at last week with the horns and the craftsmen, it's kind of like it's zooming in on the people that are opposing the nation of Israel. So all of a sudden, Israel's in view, and, and these people that are opposing the nation of Israel. And this week, we're zooming in even further. So this vision is going to zoom in and look at Jerusalem. Uh, and then as we go through more of these visions, we're going to zoom in in even greater detail in the picture. So, so that's where we're going in this, this morning. We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 2. We're going to look at this third vision that zooms in on the city of Jerusalem, and then we're going to ask the question, what the heck does this mean for us today? So um, Zechariah chapter 2, that's not a cuss word here, right? (laughs) I know it's not a bad one for my mom, so we're good. Uh, So Zechariah chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here's the vision. So Zechariah just had his other vision. He's in the middle of it. Then I look up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. You might want to think of this as like a tape measure, but just a very long one. I kept going, and he answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel was speaking, and I'm just going to pause there because this world, while some translations will put then, this is behold. This is like, this is urgent, like grab attention. Like our translation misses this part. But this is like, hey. Pay attention. While the angel was speaking, behold, he 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 was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man Jerusalem will be a city without walls, because of the great number of people and animals in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So this is all filled with urgency. Um, moving on, there's this warning. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I've scattered you to the four winds of heaven. So remember, they're in Babylon. They're exiled. They're saying, quickly, I'm going to bring judgment on them. So quickly, get out of that land. Flee. I've scattered you to the four winds, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. I'm going to do a lot of this this morning. Before we go further, I want to take a moment, just with that in the background... And, and do a little Bible 101. This is Inductive Bible Study 101. We need to go back. Uh, the question that people often have when you're a book like this, and I've heard some of you say this to me, what am I supposed to do with this stuff that we're looking at in Zechariah? It's hard to make sense of it. What am I supposed to do with it? So I want to go back to just basic Bible 101, and remember what we're supposed to do as we approach the scriptures. So, first of all, I've got a slide up here. There's some questions to ask, uh, and there's some things to look for as you're reading Scripture. So, whenever you pick up the Bible, the three predominant questions that we need to ask the text as we come to: it, what does it say about God? What am I learning about him? What does it say about me? Uh, as a human and what we're called to do, and then what am I called to do? What's he asking me to do? So who is he, who am I, and what's he asking me to do? So that's what we're coming to the text to understand. Then as we're, we're reading, there's certain things to look for. There are truths that we're supposed to accept. God created the heavens and the earth. It's a truth that we accept. There's promises to trust. There's commands to obey. There are examples to follow, and there are warnings to heed. And so as you're reading, this is like, what do I do with this stuff? Is there a truth that he's calling me to accept? Is there a promise to obey? Is there a command to obey? Is there an example to follow? Is there a warning to heed? So if we go back to week one, the, the the Scripture said, turn to me, or return to me, and I will return to you. It was a call to repentance. So it was a command that we were called to obey. Um, last week, we were looking at these truths about these world powers that God is going to oppose. So there's some truths in there to accept, and there's some promises that we're called to believe. This week's passage falls squarely into promises to trust. And so, so the, the, the call today as we look at this passage is to ask yourself the question, do I really trust these promises that God is giving? And there's two levels, well, I guess there's three levels that's going to happen. Do I trust the historic promise and, and how it plays out in Scripture? Do I trust this promise when we look at our church and where we are at in our growth process? Do we really trust these promises that God gives? And then within that, you can bring it like, to yourself. When it comes to my life and the things I'm experiencing, do I really trust the promises uh, that this, this, this looks at? So we're going to look at six promises. Um, I'll do it fairly uh, speedily so we're not here forever. Um, so we're going to look at the promises. We're going to ask the question, what does it mean for Israel? And then what does it mean for us? So the first promise that we're seeing in this passage is a promise of growth. So you get this moment where, where this man is sent out with a measuring line or a giant measuring tape, and he's stretching it over the city. The angel's like, quick, go tell that guy. You don't need to do that. And um, Because this is going to be a city without walls. So remember what's going on. Israel, um, they've, they've rejected God. They've walked away from the covenant. They've been taken into exile. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The walls are torn down. The temple has been destroyed. And they've been carted off into exile. So we're at the point in the story where they're being called back to the land. And they've begun to lay the foundations of the temple. And then they've given up. And so we're kind of around the Ezra-Nehemiah period. They've not finished rebuilding the wall. They're looking at their city, going, hey, we've been taken back to your city, but it has no defenses. And so the people are like, we gotta rebuild the temple, we gotta rebuild the walls, we gotta get protected. In the middle of this space, this vision is given where the guy goes out to measure out, where are we going to put this wall and what are the dimensions of the city going to be? And the angel says, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. A promise of growth to a people that have rejected the covenant of God and been exiled to another country, come back to their place to rebuild and they've stopped doing the very thing they were called back to do. So these are people like at every step of the way are failing in their calling, and yet this vision the angel gives is this place is going to be people beyond number. We're not going to need any walls, people and animals. Uh, So Megan, and animals. (laughs) (laughs) People and animals. So this place without walls. And I wonder about that with this building. You know, it's easy with the church to get fixated on, you know, here we are, we're gathering, we've got our walls round about us. I'm looking at this promise going, if you're promising that your people will be a people without walls, I want our church to be a church without walls. Right? And, And we're seeing that. There's people all over the world that drop in and watch our videos. There's people here that have come from all over the world. But then there's the mission effort as we go out there, like, I don't want to underestimate the work that happens as Trudy is sitting with her neighbor ministering to her in a place of pain. Uh, n- numerous people in here that are sitting with people in the city ministering to them, loving them, caring for them. Rose, as you spend time with your roommate, like we are minister It's a church that is outside of these walls. It's not about what happens in here. We did the prayer room and we spent a weekend there praying night and day. It is still available if you want to use the prayer room. Uh, we have a way you can sign up. We want you continuing to go in there and intercede for this city but as it finished what did we say and what did we pray god break those walls down we don't want people to go in that room and have an experience with you and just leave it there we want you to bust out of those walls into this room we want you to bust out of this room into the city around about us i want us to be a church without walls And that means we got to, and you want this, you've been asking for this, we want to be a church that is more focused on what's going on outside the walls of our building than what's going on inside. So do you believe that God has given a promise of growth to his people, and are you going to claim that for our church? As they're worrying about this, the wall's not complete. There's this promise we're going to be a city without walls. Remember, this is, this is a day and age where you're like, we're in Hillsborough. We don't like Beaverton. Let's go tear down their wall and annihilate the city, right? <laughs> or is it Aloha? What, what don't we like? I don't know. <laughs> it's Portland. Take Portland. Take um, Portland. We don't live in an area where there's war around us and you have to protect yourself by building a wall to make sure the enemy doesn't come. But for them, being in a city like this and not having a wall around them is scary. We're going to be a city without walls. What does that mean? That means anyone can come and tear us down whenever they want. And so there's a second promise that he gives in this passage, and it's the promise of protection. He says immediately after, I myself will be the wall of fire around it. You don't need a wall. I'm the wall of fire. And if you fast forward to the end of the passage, this exhortation, be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. You don't need to fear. God has been roused and he is coming to the protection And you can't read a passage like this where God's referring to himself as this wall of fire. You can't do it without thinking of the other places in Scripture where God's guiding and protecting presence is as fire. So you've got the pillar of fire that leads Israel. You can go back before that to the burning bush. But this pillar of fire that leads Israel uh, through the wilderness, you've got the story with Elisha, where they see these chariots of fire surrounding them as a protective wall, guarding them from the enemy nations. Uh, you, you can fast forward into the New Testament. What does it look like? It's the, the fire of the Spirit as he falls on the new believers at Pentecost and anoints them the promise that God would be fire and in that fire that we would be healed and protected. And um, one of the things I love in this promise, that this last part, God will be roused. One of the reasons we've been using the word arise a lot and talking about our discipleship strategy as arise is one of the commands in scripture. Arise, O Lord, and come to our aid. It's what the Psalms and the prophets are, are crying out. Arise, O Lord, come to our aid. Help us in our world and in our mess. And what's this promise? The Lord has been roused from his holy dwelling, and I am coming. So in this place of fear and uncertainty, the promise that growth has come and the promise that they don't need the wall because he is the protection should fill them with hope. And, you know, that promise of protection, it doesn't look like nothing bad will ever happen in our lives. Um, But there are lots of uh, New Testament passages and promises that speak about the protection we have in Jesus. And here's one of my favorite promises of protection and victory. Matthew 16, Peter's having this encounter with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say I am? You're the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, I tell you, you're Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was Christ. This is the promise that we walk in, not, not the promise of a wall protecting us. It's the promise that he is a wall of fire around us, and it doesn't matter what the world throws at us, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. If... We walk in repentance, right? Um, so this is the promise that we get to walk in. The promise for them was he is their protection. Do you believe that as you walk in this world with all of the things that you fear and dislike and, and some of the things that you know go against God's will coming against us at the, as the church, do you believe that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church? Do you believe it? The third promise, which is perhaps the most important of all of the promises, is the promise of His presence. I will be the wall of fire around you, and I will be its glory within, for I am coming, and I will live among you. This beautiful promise of his presence and his glory amongst them. The significance of this is really important because it's tied to what Ezekiel was prophesying. So if you remember in Ezekiel, Ezekiel it has this vision where he sees the glory cloud over the temple rise up and go flying away from Jerusalem. And he tells the people, God's presence has left you. And so the enemy nation, Babylon, is going to be able to come in now and destroy you. So God's presence has left. His protection is gone and so the enemy is going to conquer you but at the end of the vi- at the end of his book in Ezekiel 43 he has this other vision of this glory cloud returning He says, then a man brought to me to the gate facing east. I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. The land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I'd seen when he came to destroy the city. And like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River, I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple so so when God is saying, "My glory is going to be within you." Um, this is a direct reference to this vision that, Z- that Ezekiel saw that the glory of God was going to return and dwell with his people. The beautiful thing about the way we experience this today, we don't have to go run somewhere in the world to try and find where there's a glory cloud. <laughs> if someone's church has a glory cloud, great for them. Because uh, I tell you what I want, I want the glory cloud that he placed right here he took all of his glory and he said, I'm going to put these tongues of fire on you and I'm going to come and take residence within you. And so that glory cloud that, that, that marked the presence of God in the temple is something that inhabits us. And the only place that we have to go to encounter the glory of God is right in the heart that's surrendered to him. And if you have a room full of people with the glory of God inhabiting them and they come together fully surrendered to him and just give their all to him, what do you think happens in the room? The presence of God is manifest in the way that we're all hungering for. I love in the passage, it says he sees, he sees these visions, he sees the glory of God, and what's his response? I fell face down. People look at me sometimes when I worship and say, why do you do the crazy things you do when you worship? Let me ask you a question. When you're in worship, like if you're with my spiritual director, this is the kind of stuff he does to mess with me. Um, When you're singing in musical worship, because that's not the only kind of worship, so when worship is happening and we're singing, where is in your mind the God that you're singing to? Are you praising the God that's out there? Hey, great and glorious God, you're so amazing. You bring chaos back to order. Or is he right here in the middle of the room? And you're singing worship to the guy that's right here. Or the one that's inhabited us right here. How would worship change if every time you opened your mouth to sing you realize that Jesus was standing right beside you, how would that affect the way you sing your song? Sometimes the only thing that's reasonable when you realize that the King of Kings is standing right next to you in worship is to fall on your face. Sometimes when I have that moment where I realize the King of Kings is right in front of me, I can't do anything but get on my knees. That's the response that the people all through the Old Testament had when they saw the presence of the God. They just fell face down. They raised their hands in worship. Um, so where is this God? He promises presence. He promises His presence with His people. He promises His presence in Alliance Bible Church, not the building, right? In His people that make up this church. Let me ask you a cheeky question. Which is better, the promise of his protection but no presence or the promise of his presence but no protection? (laughs) The answer to that question exposes some things in our heart. Are we with him so that he'll give us the protection that we want? Or are we saying, Jesus, I want you so much, I don't care what the cost is, I don't care what the hurt is, I'm going to give myself wholeheartedly to you. I ask it that way to check your own heart. This passage makes it really clear that with his presence comes his protection. His protection just doesn't always look the way we wish it would in this fallen world. I think another important thing as you think about the presence of God moving in this situation is not everybody responds to the work of God in the same way. If you jump into the beginning of Ezra, as they're doing the rebuilding work, they're laying the foundation of the temple. Um, Remember what happens. The builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while so many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Something I want to, you know, there's some people that you see what God is happening right now in our midst, and you're rejoicing. This is amazing. God's doing things we've been longing for. For some people in the room, it's weeping. Like, this doesn't look the way that it's always looked. Some of the things that I cherish about church don't seem to be happening right now. And there's sorrow. And the beautiful thing about this passage, there's no judgment. It doesn't say, and the people who wept were wrong, or the people who shouted for joy were wrong. It's the reality of we uh, worship an emotional God who gave us emotions with which to praise Him. And whether we're shouting with joy that things are changing or feeling some sadness that some of the things we love aren't happening the way we want right now, like, we come together and worship, and those noises mingle together and create a united sound that goes up uh, to the heavens in a way that brings glory to Him. The fourth promise for Israel was a promise of provision— I love this one. For this is what the Lord Almighty says, after the glorious one have sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. This is a promise of provision that comes through this great reversal. Israel are slaves and enslaved and exiled in Babylon. And the promise is, when you leave, you're going to plunder these nations. And these nations that opposed you are going to end up being the foundation of funding the work that I'm going to do. And you remember where this happens before? As the people are slaves in Egypt and the plagues happen and, and Pharaoh is so angry, he's eventually he'll, just get out of my country and go somewhere else. And it says, and the Israelites went to their neighbors and asked for provisions, and people were so scared and so ready to get rid of them, the people paid Israel to leave. And in that way, they plundered the nation and were able to start in the Holy Land as a new people, provided by God through the hand of their enemy. It's the same thing happening here. These slaves will plunder. God does a great reversal, and there's more of this to come all around the world, there are people who are enslaved in various forms. Well, outright slavery or just oppression and mistreatment, a day is coming when God will flip that, and the slaves will be leading, and the leaders will be humbled. Um, But there's a promise of provision. As you look at our church, with all of the journey it's been on, and all of the dreams that we have for going forward, and, and the dreams that you're carrying that many of you haven't even had a chance to articulate to us yet, do you believe the promise of provision, that no matter what happens, if our hearts are for Him and we're pursuing His will, He will bring the provision we need uh, to to drive forward His will for our community. Fifth promise, uh, I've called it the promise of reach. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. This is covenant language. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent you. The promise to Israel was that you as a nation no longer is one ethnicity going to define who's in and out. It's no longer just the people descended from Abraham that determine if you can be mine, but there's a day coming where diversity is going to mark the church. All of these nations that have been oppressing, those nations, tongues, and tribes are going to worship me. Uh, Look at our room. Americans, Canadians, former Cubans, Hmong, Mexican, Latino, Scottish, Kiwi, European There's so much diversity starting to come into this room as people from every nation, tongue, and tribe are forming the family of God. And then you look at the mission effort around the world. Uh, a buddy message made in India today, 13 people baptized. That makes six, uh, Yeah, 62 people baptized since January 1st. As this unreached people group starts giving their lives to the Lord all over the world right now, we look in the news and we see all of the horrible things that we don't like that are happening around about us where other people in secret and hiddenness around the globe are leading multitudes to Jesus Um, from every nation, tongue, and tribe. It's thankless, hard work that they do with great sacrifice. Um, But this is the promise, the promise of reach. Do you believe that when God says every nation, tongue, and tribe will mark his church, that this can become a diverse, multi-generational, multi-ethnic church that reflects the city that we're part of. Do you believe it? The last promise he gives is a promise uh, which uh, is, is in our favor, uh, the promise of fidelity. I wanted to call this the promise of promise. <laughs> But he says, whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. What's this saying? He delights in his people. This th- There are several times that this phrase, the apple of his eye, comes up in Scripture. Um, and, and we often translate it, you know, it's like a, a statement of how precious someone is. Um, this time when it comes up, it's worded a little bit different. And so scholars are like, I don't really know what to do with this. Is it meant to mean the same as everything else that's talking about like how precious the person is? Or does it mean touching God's people is like poking yourself in the eye? Either way, (laughs) the statement is that God loves his people and anyone that stands against them is doing damage to themselves. This statement of love and protection, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion. This is the longing of his heart, that the inheritance I'm going to receive is my people. Um, Side note, Israel here called the Holy Land the only place in Scripture where, where the land of Israel is referred to by the phrase the Holy Land. And then again, this covenant language, he will again choose Jerusalem. So what's he saying? I delight in you. I choose you. And who's he talking to? He's talking to directly the people of Israel who have rejected the covenant. They've been exiled into another land. They've returned to the land to rebuild and they've given up on the work of rebuilding. And those people, he's looking at them going, I delight in you and I again choose Jerusalem. This is what happens in marriage where you look at your spouse and you go, as much as it's been horrible and all the things we've experienced and cancer and moves and whatever, I would do it all again because I choose you. Um, This is what he's saying, I choose. It's the promise of his fidelity toward us that he chooses his people and he never lets them go. All of these promises depend on two things, and I would say one of them more than the other, but here's the two conditions of these promises. And again, you'll see the thread that comes all the way through Zechariah. His faithfulness and our repentance. If you look at the nation of Israel, the beautiful thing is he's giving the promise to choose them again, even when they're walking in disobedience. So his faithfulness even trumps our repentance because it's his faithfulness that enables our repentance. So let me see these again in this passage, the promise of growth, the promise of protection, the promise of presence, the promise of provision, the promise of reach, the promise of fidelity, all with this invitation to turn to him, and he will turn to us. So this is the invitation for this week. What do you do with this? Six promises to ask yourself, do I believe these? Can I trust these promises? And then my invitation to you is let us claim these promises for our church. And take Zechariah 2 and say to God, you say you do this for your people. I claim for our church your presence. I claim for our church your provision. So God, would you come, would you move, and would you do again in our day the things you say? You have always done? God, Zechariah's message is so profound, and there are so many ways we see the truths and the promises of your Scripture, and, and uh, we believe them in part. And so, God, what we need this week is you to help us examine the truths and the promises that you give, and to honestly ask yourself the question, do we believe this? Do we believe it as it existed in the past for the people of Israel? Do we believe it as it applies to your church around the world today? And so, God, what we're asking for is an increase of faith, an increase of trust that you're the God who says he'll do what he, do, he does, an increase of trust that you can make these things true in our midst, an increase of trust that you've not given up on the world, and it's not uh, all a mess, but that in, well, it is all a mess, but in the middle of that mess that you can break in with your light to bring transformation. So, Jesus, thank you that you're present. Thank you, you protect. Thank you, you provide. And thank you that you're the one working in us to bring transformation into your image for the sake of the world.